So, Phil, why don't we do your case? This is a 53-year-old female who had been followed by her primary care physician and her gastroenterologist for well over a year. She'd had intermittent difficulties of anemia. She'd undergone repeated upper and lower endoscopies, and no lesion had been noted. Ultimately, she went through a small bowel capsule endoscopy, and at that time, there was a suspicious abnormality in the small bowel, and she had a CT scan, which did show a lesion. She went on to surgery, had a resection of a tumor that was uh, 4.5 by 3.5 by 3 centimeters. The margins were clear. The tumor was CKIP positive, CD34 positive, vimentin positive, and focally positive for smooth muscle actin. There were fewer than five mitoses per high power field. The patient was then referred and was seen at Dana-Farber and was randomized to the imatinib versus placebo trial. And she went on therapy for about a year was entirely asymptomatic, did very well. She was extremely anxious during this period of time. And then about a little less than a year ago, was notified that the study had been unblinded and she had, in fact, received Gleevec for a year without any difficulty. So she's now just about three years out and disease-free and a lot less anxious and doing fine. And she stopped it at the end of the year? She stopped it at the end of the year. So, Chuck, can you talk a little bit about where we are in adjuvant therapy, particularly related to duration? We're in a quandary because we don't know the correct duration. So again, this trial gave people a year of drug, but there was a fairly high relapse rate after that year ended. There are two European trials. One is looking at zero versus two years, and one is looking at one versus three. And again, this is just my own personal bias, but I believe that longer will be better. There's no doubt about it. What I would like to see done is sort of an intermediate duration, again, with a, is this curable versus a lifelong administration but that is not very popular in the adjuvant setting, and it probably will never be done. So ACASOG is trying to develop a duration question, but it's really hard because we have no data to guide us. You know, again, we may find out that three is better than one. In fact, I think we probably will. But then do you do three versus five, which doesn't seem that different? Do you do three versus 10? Do you do three versus lifetime? And so it was easier when they were in the study because they got the placebo, and most people on the study stopped afterward. Now I'm seeing the opposite, which is we have trial data that was a positive trial, they're getting the drug for a year, and then they're saying, I'm not going to stop it. I'm going to keep going. And it's hard to argue with that, but also you can't support that with any actual data either. What do you actually recommend to patients? Well, Brian brought up a really interesting question, which is, are we worried, again, in a potentially curable or at least a very long-lived population about giving the drug for a long time? And actually, I'm not worried about that. We have a lot of CML data. We're just publishing our seven-year follow-up from the metastatic GIST trial, and people just don't get long-term complications. So that's not a big issue. But there is expense, and there are minor toxicities, and that is a more realistic issue. And again, the Europeans say, hey, you can salvage all these people when they relapse. Why would you possibly want to commit them to lifelong Gleevec when you can give a short duration, push off the time to recurrence, and then give it to them again later, sort of in cyclical bursts? It's hard to argue with that, except that it's not a very effective argument with patients. We're very, very sure your disease is going to come back, if we don't give you Gleevec continuously, we will give it to you again when it happens. But they don't like that very much at all. So I look at the risks. I mean, when I have these small bowel tumors with 50 mitoses, I have tended to let them stay on the drug. When I have these 26 centimeter ones, I tend to let them stay on the drug. But mostly what I've done is said, you can stay on it right now for three years because that is the longest safety data we have in the adjuvant setting. And I'm not really comfortable doing it a lot longer than that. But now I'm getting near that three-year point, and they're asking to stay on it longer. So... And I think I'm in the minority. I don't know if you talked to Dr. Dimitri or the other experts here tonight, but not a lot of other people are giving it for long duration. Ron DiMatteo does. You know, it was his study for one year, but he does it longer off study because I think he also believes it's a relatively systemic disease. John? 
Is your sense, it was brought up earlier, that it seems like it may be more toxic in the adjuvant setting. I had a patient on the ACASOG trial who was very obvious to me and to her that she was on imatinib, and she pressed through for the year. One thing Dr. Dimitri said was maybe with metastatic tumors, they're soaking up the imatinib so there's <laughs> less toxicity, and a patient getting <laughs> it adjuvantly with at least no gross disease other organs might be seeing the drug more. I will say, I mean, one of the amazing things that emerged from DiMatteo's trial was the tiny percentage of people that got a year worth of drug. But to be fair, the percentage of the people on placebo that got a year of drug was small as well. So I think... You mean people weren't able to complete the year? A lot were not able to complete the year. On either arm. Is that your experience in clinical practice? No. Off study, they, if we feel they're high risk enough to get it, they do it. But I actually have to agree with you. It seems to be a little bit more toxic for whatever reason. Brian, does soaking up the drug make any sense to you? I didn't question him when he said it, but I was thinking, I wonder what that means. Sounds like something I would say, but I don't know if I <laughs> agree with it. You know, I don't think it makes a strong amount of biologic sense. I mean, you'd have a serum level. And it would, well, mean, if you just had a lot of big masses, then sure, you've got more, you know, you've got more flesh to treat, essentially. But, I mean, if you're weighing your patients and you're treating them on a per... I guess you're not really treating them on a per kilogram basis, are you? What I would say is if they're symptomatic from metastatic disease, weight loss, pain, these people are pretty sick. And so probably making that better dramatically overshadows the minor toxicities of Gleevec. But in the postoperative setting, they feel perfect. So anything that happens, they can really focus on. That's my gut feeling as to what the reason is. John? And that's been my experience with the AIs. I mean, the AIs, when patients had metastatic disease, there weren't a lot of bone and joint complaints. But now... When you use them adjuvantly, there's a lot more, so maybe that's what it is. I completely is. agree. Particularly if you use it for 10 years, huh? Well, so actually, if I can just follow up, that's actually the question, in my mind, in the adjuvant setting. Is it, again, a colon cancer model where one year of Gleevec really is the best in cures? Is it a tamoxifen model where five years is definitely better than short term, but 10 years isn't better than five? Whoa, or- whoa, 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 whoa. Now we think it is maybe better, as of last month. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I don't do breast cancer, so I shouldn't misinform you, but... The bottom line is longer duration clearly is better. Sure. Or is it a lifelong duration? And what do you think the matinib and just model is going to be? I think... Sounds like B. I think B to C. Yeah, B to C. Any other questions? Lowell? Well, by another analogy to the breast cancer, when there's switching data in breast cancer right. between hormonal treatments where you take, you know, three to five years of one switch to another one. Now, what's the next generation of adjuvant trials? I mean, another thing breast cancer starts, you have to plan the next generation before you get the full data from the first generation trial. So well, are you going to do any switching that's ideas? That's a great question, and that's the trouble with the adjuvant trials. So the ACASAC study, I can't go into too much detail, the proposal, but basically the answer was not going to be obtained until 2017. And, you know, who knows what drugs we're going to have by that point? Who knows what strategies we're going to have by that point? But it takes forever to do a trial. What also was proposed, though, by some experts was an alternating imatinib-sunitinib strategy for exactly that model. But again, since we have no standalone sunitinib data, we weren't too excited by it. This is really a vexing problem in so many tumors, you know, and looking for intermediate endpoints. Brian, anything that might be promising in GIST, any serum markers, anything that maybe could be utilized? People are looking at free kid in serum and things like that, but nothing's really panned out yet. I mean, that's the whole problem of sort of making long-term plans for studies and everything is you know things are going to change, and you don't know what great treatment is right around the corner that's going to completely change the way we think. I mean, currently, all of the focus is on treating kid. It's all kid inhibition and what that's going to do, but I can tell you in our laboratories and at the basic science level and in the 
big pharma, everybody's thinking of other targets. So I think combination therapy, I mean, beyond just anti-angiogenesis, is not far down the road. We're going to be hitting things like AKT, mTOR, PI3K, probably in combination with imatinib or sutent. And I think that's to me, is going to have a much higher chance of actual cure. CKIT and CD117, uh, different labs have different ways of testing, and why are they testing the same thing, and what's the difference? So there are several antibodies out there. Well, CD117 is KIT. Is so that's kit. just another name. So it's just a different name. That's the CD antigen name. Okay. Yeah. But there are different antibodies out there. And there's really variable quality in immunohistochemistry across the nation. I mean, there's... So you're saying there's variability in how people read whether or not KIT's present or not? Oh, absolutely. In fact, oh. my consult, I have a large consultation practice. That's scary. GIST. It's sarcomas in general, but I see lots and lots of GISTs. And a frequent problem is false positives. False negatives are not quite as common as false positives. False positives. positives. Wow. So, for instance, desmoid fibromatosis, I probably see one or two a week. So these people are assumed to have GIST? That's right. right. They come in with kit-positive spindly things in their gut, and they're called GISTs, but some smart oncologist or a surgeon somewhere raises the specter that maybe this doesn't really well, seem like a gist to us. So it's send it. often if they don't respond to a metinib. <laughs> yeah, and they're not responding, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, are there any figures out there for what the rate of false positivity is in the community? No, I don't think so, and it's quite variable. Some community pathology groups are fantastic and do an, an unbelievably good job, probably even better than some academic centers, but it is variable. I would say the smaller groups tend to be the ones that I see more problems with than the bigger groups. 